Good morning, I'm Sana, and it is another beautiful day here in the Mid-South. Of course, you know, I always think it is a beautiful day when we can spend some time together. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Today's conversation will touch on a sensitive subject, suicide. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, and each year, September 10th, is World Suicide Prevention Day. This is a time to remember those affected by suicide, to raise awareness, and to focus efforts on directing treatment to those who need it most. Suicide is a leading cause of death in the United States. On average, there are 130 suicides per day, and men are three times more likely to die by suicide than women. This morning, I'm joined by Ashley Aran-Malate. Ashley is a current psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner honor student at Duke University with an enduring passion to make quality mental health care more accessible to underserved populations. Ashley's unique approach to understanding and treating mental health has been refined through her own personal trauma recovery and nearly 15 years of nursing experience among underserved populations at some of the top-ranked hospitals in the nation. Unsatisfied with the quality gap she observed while working in some primary care settings in North and South Memphis, Ashley pursued a master's in healthcare administration in an effort to better extend herself as an advocate for marginalized communities. She has published six mental health articles for Gale Health, has completed the manuscript for a children's book, and continually dots ideas for two future planned books on sticky notes that sometimes get misplaced. I understand that, Ashley. All while juggling three active kids. Good morning, Ashley, and welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Such a treat to uh, be able to talk with you about these things. Yes, this is such an important topic. And, you know, thank you so much as we were, you know, preparing for this show. Just thank you so much for reminding me that September is a National Suicide Prevention Month and such an important topic for us to discuss because it's often not discussed until something tragic happens. And so, again, just a really good time for us to know more about suicide prevention and again to raise awareness yes um especially in the younger age groups it's never too early to start discussing this yes absolutely i mean i think one uh, one kind of shift that i've noticed in society or in u.s society i feel like there is an opening up of more conversations around mental health so i think that is a good shift but of course more that we can become aware of when it comes to suicide in particular? Yes. A lot of some ways, I, I think we, we're misunderstanding. I, I think it's great we're having these conversations, but I think there are a few words that we're using, but still misunderstanding. For example, trauma. Hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of times we hear the word trauma and we think um, something catastrophic or something that results in a, something, a visible injury on someone. And we tend to overlook the fact that even a child being ignored by their caregiver on a regular basis is traumatic. Mm. And now, um, you know, when we compile that on top of outside stressors and um, loneliness or access to substance use or uh, being in a vulnerable neighborhood, 
we're indirectly creating, you know, an environment for someone to to harm themselves, um, even psychologically. So, suicide prevention is is unique um, in a sense where it's not just the responsibility of a mental health provider. It could be all of our responsibilities as humans just to know how to show up for ourselves first, mm-hmm. and then show up for someone else. Um, and you know, not trying to be a fixer, but if we see someone experiencing distress or we're trying to prevent that, how can we just give them a resource mm. and give them that, that power to still have autonomy in their own decision-making? Mm-hmm. Well, there was so much there that you just said that we can unpack. I mean, thinking first, let me just start with what you said about trauma, because we do often think, or we can identify more easily those kind of big traumatic events, right? So if they're, you know, thinking about climate change and all of the displacement that's happening because of that, we can understand that as a big, I guess, capital T trauma. Um, but I think you so eloquently described trauma is not just these big events that we might be able to specifically pinpoint that happened at this kind of one moment in time. But it's also all these other traumas that we may be have thought of like, oh, that's just the way it is, or that's just how I grew up, or that was just, you know, my family or my neighborhood. We don't realize how those environments or even those regular interactions or lack of interactions have caused a type of trauma, you know, to us, to how we're thinking about ourselves, how we're connecting with others. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how we might start to think about trauma differently and even what, um, if you could go into depth more on how some of these types of traumas are impacting us. Sure. I, so I'd like to, I'd like to say that when, when someone is affected by trauma, if we don't understand it ourselves, there's a there's a common tendency to minimize it. Um, or you know, you had a bad day at work. Well, at least you have a job. Mm. Or you know, um, at least you have food on the table. Your life is not X Y Z. And there's more of a comparison and validating negative cycle that we end up putting ourselves in, knowingly or unknowingly. Um, or even someone experiencing a hardship, friend, family, or stranger, we might just say. Um, it's not that bad or um, somehow putting the blame on that person caused that trauma themselves. Bullying is an example that we see in childhood. I had a, actually had a childhood friend um, who completed suicide just because she was trying to get her mom's attention and she was in middle school, but we, we forget how our actions can impact someone else, right? And we can't take that, their reaction back. Um, so when we, when we, you even use the word PTSD, we, we, we reserve that for war veterans typically. Um, and you know, not everyone thankfully is, is vulnerable to PTSD who experiences trauma, but we have to give ourselves permission to accept that we can, we're vulnerable to certain conditions. And then how can we prevent that and talk about it regularly enough in a safe space to, um, give it some normalcy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think part of what you said earlier was talking about how 
trauma or even just healing isn't just on mental health providers, um, even though, of course, very much important to seek out mental health specialists, um, but also how we have both individual responsibility for ourselves, but also to others, those that we say we're in relationship with or in community with to kind of open up some of those conversations um, and also to create environments that can be more healing um, versus continuing to replicate some of these traumas that we've experienced or that those around us have experienced as well. So I want to actually start with more of the individual and kind of community aspect before moving to the mental health specialist or mental health provider um, aspect. But as individuals, what are some things that we can do to either open up some of these conversations or to create more you know, healing spaces for ourselves, but also for others as well? Oh, number one, recognizing that every behavior has a meaning. Mm right? Even if it's a positive behavior of remembering to, you know, hold the door open for someone or a negative behavior like acting out or, um, you know, being rude to your coworker or however, every behavior has a meaning. And once we can really grasp that notion, we can just give ourselves a little more compassion that I'm, be I'm behaving this way or responding this way because of something I'm experiencing internally. Mm. Right. If someone's rude to me, I can I can thoughtfully know that they're responding based on something they're feeling and not just um, be reactive of they're attacking me. Mm -hmm. And um, one, one thing I learned in my training is that when we have coping mechanisms and skills, those are also behaviors that just help us feel like we're, we can survive even in a moment or at home um, as a part of our conditioning. And in my training, I've been taught, don't take away something from someone, even if it's just a coping skill, if I'm not willing to replace it with something. Mm. Right? Because then it's, it's just, um, it is, it's a disservice. And the conversations we can use, I like to use this analogy when we use the word help and helping others. Imagine a neighborhood. I mean, you can think North Memphis, for example, and, and a community or a group of people or organization wants to quote unquote help, right? Because there's great need. And if we're meeting a, a hunger need, they might regularly say, okay, every week we're gonna bring you food, we're gonna bring you bread and, and water. Is that okay? Great. And so every week we, we have these deliveries of meals. However, at, at you know week three, somebody starts complaining that I'm getting tired of the same, same food or you know, can we get something different? Or if they might miss a delivery day, someone starts to get angry. Mm -hmm. And in that well-intentioned help, we, we disempower someone in need to be able to help themselves. So if we can instead say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna bring you meals for two weeks. That's cool. But I'm also gonna teach you how to bake bread and then also how to sell it and also how to manage your money so you can just serve yourself and then your community and then others, and that can become a multi-generational thing. Mm, I love that example. And I think that's so important because we often do get stuck in this cycle of, well, I just want to help you. Like, I know how I could make it better. Or if you only did this, or if you just had that, which I can provide for you. And right. we think that we are solving a problem, but we're not. Um, so I love this idea of 
empowerment, even what you said about the coping mechanisms, which I think is so important because oftentimes we might be able to identify in ourselves or maybe um, identify in those that we're in relationship with some unhealthy coping mechanisms. And we often focus on eliminating those coping mechanisms without, as you mentioned, needing to replace it with something else. Those coping mechanisms were created for a specific reason. They solved a specific problem, which may or may not even actually exist anymore, um, but yet that practice is still being used. Um, and so how can we replace it with something else that will be healthier and that will be a response to maybe what is actually happening in the moment versus maybe the reminders of what has happened in the past? Absolutely. Along those same lines, when we're, when we're looking to help someone or have that conversation, especially hard conversations, the acronym that I think of is WAIT, W-A-I-T, why am I talking? So if you can ask yourself that, you know, quietly before you go to volunteer someone advice who just wants to be seen and just like, shut up, just sit quietly, <laughs> I'm going, through, you know, why am I talking? Is it because I want to feel like I'm saving someone? Is it because I feel like I have to please, you know, it's just, it's a useful way for us to help pause and check in with ourselves before we reach in to help someone. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that idea of why am I talking? Oh, mm -hmm. because <laughs> we talk so much. Yes, yes. It's like, is it my ego that wants to talk? Is it... Um my expertise. I mean, really, it gives you some good insight. <laughs> I know I'm already, you know, I, I feel that this was so timely that you shared this because I'm like, oh, I'm going to implement this immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you would have told me this a couple of days ago. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, but what you just said about, you know, this idea that sometimes the people that, you know, are talking to us, right, or sharing with us, it's just this need to be seen, to be heard, to be held in that moment, right, whatever they're saying, to just be acknowledged. Um, and that is so important to all of our human experience that need to be seen, to be fully seen, to be seen as who we are, or maybe even to be seen as who we hope that we can become. Yeah. Um, and so when we, you know, do all this talking, <laughs> talking and fixing and quote unquote helping. Um, Make them seen first and then you got the rest. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is definitely a, a process. So I love that, that simple mind shift of like, wait, okay, why am I talking? I'm going to, you know, I'm definitely going to keep that one <laughs> in my mind. It's, it's such a good one. It's, it's, oh, it's great. That one is really good. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Ashley around Malate and we're talking about mental health. And as you may know, September is National Suicide Prevention Month. Now, I know we were talking kind of more generally about kind of trauma and even, you know, those moments when we are trusted enough for someone to open up to us. Um, but I'm wondering in the context of suicide more specifically, are there specific warning signs? Because, you know, not everyone is going to say, you know, oh, I've been thinking about harming myself, you know, in some way. Um and in many times, 
you know, people don't say anything at all, or, you know, there's just a, a real sense of surprise when someone does um, complete suicide. So I'm wondering, are there any warning signs that we might be kind of on alert for? Yes, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and then as, as in my early nursing years working in the hospital, I have dealt with, you know, the, the sickest of the sick medically and cancer patient. And oftentimes they're visibly, their suffering and pain is visible to the eye. And unique to mental health and emotional pain, you and I are smiling and in a great mood right now, but one of us could potentially be suffering inside. So removing the notion of someone looking okay and assuming they're okay based on dress, um, mood even. I mean, you could be in a great mood one hour and a terrible one in the next. Um, something, <laughs> I like to joke about this is that even people who look well put together, quote unquote, materially successful, some of the rudest people I've ever met are the ones who are like vegan, Iron Man, <laughs> but they have, you know, they literally have it going on in life, but they just, they don't have that emotional intelligence to really connect with the human. Mm -hmm. So there's so many misunderstandings about how we go about like um, accepting what looks like safe and normal. Um, and even with depression, which is one of the leading causes of disability in the world, especially in this country, even pre pandemic, it was a, it's a very complicated, misunderstood condition. Um, and surprisingly, we're, we're, we're looking at new data that shows that depression might be overdiagnosed because part of it, we might be missing bipolar, types of bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. right? And that's one, that's a more, uh, I'm not so sure, less pretty diagnosis. And people don't want to talk about bipolar, you know, as much as they want to talk about maybe anxiety because it's cute, we could joke about it. But that's another pressing thing. So depression is what typically leads to someone considering suicide. And depression has many faces. It could be someone just not wanting to get out of bed or, or someone who just puts a smile on their face and just and is high functioning. When we're looking at people, when we're wanting to know about warning signs, sudden subtle shifts in people with their mood, their eating habits. Um, I mean, very relevant now with social media posts. Mm. Because, you know, I, I, I personally like to use, you know, self-deprecating, just funny memes sometimes. A lot of people like to do that. But pay attention to maybe what they might be sharing or maybe their patterns of sharing, right? Mm -hmm. If they're like, they post every day and then suddenly you don't hear from them for two weeks. Hey, let me check on that person. Let me check on that strong friend who's always being there for other people. Mm -hmm. that, that's a heavy burden to carry when you're really dealing with a lot of people's emotions and stuff and junk. Um, if someone, because I've unfortunately received a recent text message from a friend and it was parasuicidal, right? This was, um, I don't know, four, four or five days ago. And it was just a, a warning type text of, I just want to say hello for the last time. Don't reply back to this. And, you know, mm -hmm. ordinarily, but okay. I think maybe anyone would be like, is this attention seeking? Like, do you really just need to like go to the mall and just walk, you know, just need somebody to talk to, or is this serious? Because I've, I've lost family and a few family members and friends to suicide, unfortunately. And substance use, 
was a part of that. Mm-hmm. And now seeing that substances are more accessible to younger people, especially these days, it's easy to talk about alcohol, marijuana, but let's talk about the hard stuff that these kids have access to as well, because statistically suicidal thoughts are rising. Um, self-harm, people who cut themselves or maybe pick at their skin a lot. It's just subtler ways um, to, to soothe a suffering inside. Mm-hmm. And, and those are, those are some, some bigger ones, but there are so many subtle ones. And I think just staying connected to people, especially in times where we don't really have that regular human to human contact, mm-hmm. you have to be extra vigilant. Yeah, definitely. Because even as I was listening to you name some of these kind of warning signs, they are in general kind of very subtle, right? And the only way that you would really pick up on those is if you are connected, right, to people. And, you know, I know oftentimes people are so busy, you know, you check in maybe a couple, you know, times a month, right? Or you have friends where you only get to connect maybe every other month, you know, and that's fine. But also that means there's a lot of things that would go unnoticed uh, because people can also be very um, guarded in what they share or very selective in what they share as well. So even as I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking about how, you know, I, we can create spaces where people feel more comfortable with even saying like, you know, I'm kind of struggling with something or it's not a good day for me, right? Or whatever the way you might express that you're feeling a little down or not like yourself. Um, because that's, a, that's um, a very vulnerable place to be in. <laughs> to know to say that but then to also believe that the person you're sharing it with can hear you right so getting back to what you mentioned earlier about being seen yes absolutely and thinking about what types of circumstances contribute or can contribute to depression that we may not immediately think about right we all have a genomic very vulnerability to something right whether it's high blood pressure, schizophrenia, alcohol use disorder, we are all vulnerable to something. So it it lessens the judgment, but what kind of things can contribute to depression? Okay, a new baby, a new move, loss of a job, especially these days, right? Mm -hmm. Or a pet or moving to a new city where like you're, you're suddenly away from all of your friends. Those are real life things and, and, you're in the academic setting as well. We've got grades, pressure for academic performance, um, and the, the access is so much different. So um, trying to prevent depression is the first step to trying to prevent you know, suicide, mm-hmm. right? So normalizing just talking about our mood and our feelings and letting it be beyond the scope of just sadness or madness someone being really angry could be just depressed right that's just how it shows up for them Mm -hmm. um I saw a really unique meme the other day that said you know we're all about it's all good it's all fine and well when we're talking about yoga and self-care days but what about those times where we feel manic or we black out or we have dark thoughts and that's those hard conversations that we need to have more often because we just can't assume that I mean they look okay. They probably don't go through that hard stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that was so important in what you were talking about earlier, how we might see someone and they look healthy, whatever that idea is in our mind, right? (laughs) So they might look like, you know, the ultra marathoner or the person healthy eating, have their own garden, or they just look like the person who has it all together. And we don't know what their interior wellness is like, those interior thoughts and interior feelings. I know just for me, when I am feeling like in a mood, right? Or I'm feeling down, the first thing I do is I tell myself like, I'm gonna get like dressed up and super fancy, right? And so in the days that you might, or I think anyway, I don't know what y'all would think, where I think like, oh, I'm really dressed up. Those are the days where I'm actually internally feeling the worst. But I think that just goes to speak to that point of you don't know just by looking at someone from the outside what it is they might be dealing with internally. So again, just the importance of having those relationships where you are connected, but then also creating the space where someone can, you know, share whatever it is. And like you said, normalizing those conversations. Yes. <laughs> to validate your point about getting dressed up on your lowest days, I was like, if you see me outside building an orphanage brick by brick, it's not, it's not just because I'm trying to do well. It's because I'm in crisis. And most, <laughs> like I'm having a really bad day. I need to go do something like great, you know, to to help somebody because I'm in distress. Um, And with our access, even with, you know, marginalized communities is where my heart is. I remember even just the help that I got when I had multiple seasons of trauma recovery and the quick privilege it was to just be like, oh yeah, your insurance card says you can see 88 providers. You pick your top choice. You've got psychiatrists, psychologists, licensed clinical social worker, all the way, and it keeps going. Um, but what about my uncle who is uninsured war veteran who's homeless in the streets of New Orleans? What about him? Like, how do we have such extreme outcome differences? Mm-hmm. Um, and how can we meet someone where they're at if they suddenly lose insurance and don't have that good access, right? What are some websites or apps? You know, no Instagram is not a therapy, <laughs> a replacement. But man, it sure does help when you need like just a quick affirmation or like, wow, I didn't know that website existed um, in, uh, you know, NAMI.org. Let me check it out. Mm-hmm. Or that suicide prevention hotline that was in my explore page. I'm going to save that and then or share it with a friend. So there's, you know, I, even though social media is kind of complicate things, it gives us a fresher way to just reach people and meet them where they're at and give them resources. Um, when we don't feel like we have any at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that is key. Oftentimes when we really need these mental health services the most, we don't have access. So if you lose a job, which also means losing healthcare benefits, if you had mental health care covered under your health benefits, right? But then all of that is now gone. Um, And the many other ways where access to mental health is there's so many barriers, you know, even finding a provider that might specialize in your specific types of trauma or a mental health provider that might share your same, you know, race, ethnicity, or gender, right? So there are a lot of barriers and the idea also within different families and communities where it is stigmatized to talk to people about, you know, your business, right? <laughs> and so- right, right. Um, I had a patient recently, uh, maybe 30, 
31 year old black guy and he just came and he was like I have only known bad stuff happening to me since I was a kid and I would just like to know what it's like to just you know not live on the streets have a friend and know how to keep friends and have a job and the one psychiatrist I was working with she said he's he's to the point where he should just be on disability because he he cannot function sustainably to even take care of himself or even thrive in a social environment which is so heartbreaking because you know in a sense yep yeah, a lot of his crap was preventable you know he just had a hard family life and coming in to talk to someone of either a different shade or culture for the first time about his hardship was like I'm the first safe person he's talked to you know and you have to understand that going to someone to talk about our, our hardship especially for the first time it's not easy and that's okay and then it's okay if you also don't feel a connection with that person that you're talking to that professional you know mm -hmm. it's okay to quote unquote shop around for a therapist if you have that ability mm -hmm. and ask them questions because they're technically there to serve you and having that ownership and knowing it's okay to have that ownership and yeah, I want to have a good experience. I want to heal, or I just want to feel like safe in this space emotionally. You get to have a part in that. Mm, yeah. So important. Just that idea of co-creating that space. Like, yes, you are going and talking to someone who is a professional, right? But also this is a service that is supposed to serve you. So you do get a say in, you know, what this experience might be like. Your word co-creating reminds me of co-regulating. You know, with, with like co-regulating with your nervous system of having good people around you. Mm. You know, you go to work, you might spend eight, eight, 10 hours a day at work, but you come home to a really crappy environment, right? Or even young people, they go to school and they're, and they're fine at school, but then they come home and the house is, is, is cluttered. There's too many animals. There's not enough food. It's too hot. It's whatever, you know, it's like these layers of stuff. And then you, the, the teacher wonders why the kids behave in this way at school. And then the parent wonder why the kid behave that way at home. And it's just, if we can just help people con control their environments and the people around them as best as they can. Mm -hmm. Your friends, I mean, we got some fake friends and friends who maybe not want to see you evolve to your highest self and master yourself. Because where our attention goes, where our energy goes, it flows. And trying to make an appointment with a provider there's a provider shortage absolutely you might have to wait a good three four weeks to be seen and then what can you do what can we teach people to do in that interim mm -hmm. so they can still feel like they can comfort themselves or know how to get support and soothe themselves like self-care practices um, until they're able to really dig in with the provider mm -hmm. What are some of the ways that folks who are listening maybe could engage in some healthy practices to soothe themselves um, if they are experiencing some sort of kind of internal unrest or maybe just a general feeling of like, you know, dep I don't, maybe depression or just kind of down? What are some things that people could do kind of right now? In the here and now, the short and dirty is there are, this is a very nerdy reference, but that we've got some chemicals in our brain that we can intentionally control with our thoughts. We can, you know, with our own breathing, we can regulate our heart. And it's just a really fascinating thing. But same thing with our thoughts, we can control 
to a certain degree, our highs and lows. If we're wanting to feel that hit, like a good, happy hit, writing a to-do list and checking off some stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, or I love music. It's deeply regulating for the nervous system, you know, especially when you have headphones on and they're good quality. <laughs> good music that just makes you feel safe inside. It doesn't have to be about anybody else. Um, boundaries. Let's talk about boundaries because, you know, a few years ago when I got really into just mindfulness practices and controlling my internal environment as well as my external as best as I could, mindfulness sounds hippy dippy and I love trying to demystify it because scientifically, if we can control our thoughts and how we see ourselves and how we see our situation, we have the power to control our life. Mm. And Boundaries is one of those words where we think like, uh, I mean, it sounds really rigid and it could feel rigid if you're not used to having order in your life or order in your mind. And there are different types of boundaries that people can include in self-care. There's time boundaries, right? Um, I'm going to go to bed at nine o'clock every night because I know if I stay up too late, I'm going to be miserable in the morning. I'm going to oversleep for work and I'm going to self-sabotage, right? Or... Or, hey, Sana, I know you're really busy, but I want to check in. I have a question I got to ask you about, you know, writing a grant. And you say, yes, I can talk to you, Ash, but I only got 30 minutes, right? And I'm not, and I can respect that. Someone who wants to honor your boundaries will respect, like, okay, cool, 30 minutes, got it. There are um, financial boundaries. Uh, I've got my credit cards memorized because I like the online shop. That's just something I struggle with, you know, we're working through it, but financial boundaries are ways that we can just help control our own internal environment too, right? You get that rush when you buy something new or if you're feeling kind of bad, but if we can be like, you know what, that money is for um, a business idea that I have, I'm going to save it. Um, Being mindful of what we consume, I call it conscious consumerism. What are we looking at on TV? Mm-hmm. we're looking at on social media that might trigger us subconsciously to think certain ways about ourselves that are not serving us right what are we putting in our bodies um at very very simply food can be used to fuel our bodies optimally or it can be used to hurt us you know the wrong food choices not being hydrated can affect our moods and I, I, I want to encourage people to know that when possible, right? I don't think everybody should be running to the farmer's market. I know everybody doesn't have the same access, but even if you live in a food desert or, or somewhere where you just don't have the best access, being mindful of what you're putting in your body and appreciating it and knowing that it can help serve you can are just basic um, self-care practices. Emotionally, emotional boundaries, physical boundaries. I love hugs, but you know, maybe not every day, those kind of things just to help people know that they can, I, I can verbalize my needs. I know how to put words to my feelings, like with, I feel statements. So now I feel comforted when you give me a compliment versus you may be mad. Mm. I feel mad when you say things like this, putting words to our feelings in a different way can really help us know what we need, be consistent with those things and know how to search out those things that fulfill our needs. Mm. 
There was so much there. I'm so happy that this show will archive on wyxr.org and in the podcast format because you gave so many great, I mean, so so much wisdom, so many great nuggets, but then the practical steps, so important. And I was taking notes because there's so much that you said that I think was just so important, but that whole idea of verbalizing needs which can seem very foreign if we were taught that, you know, everyone else's needs comes first or that you should just be happy with what you have. Um, And yes, we should be very grateful for what we have, but there is also a space for us to say, you know, I need, you know, whatever that emotional need or physical need is. Um, And so I think that's so important in thinking about those I feel statements. So again, just being able to acknowledge and honor our feelings. I think a lot of times um, in certain cases, people can look down upon for having feelings, right? And for, you know, talking about their feelings that in certain um, instances, it's seen as a weakness. Mm -hmm. So it can be, again, just, uh, it can be difficult to get into that mode of feeling okay with saying I have a feeling. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, vulnerability is scary, but, you know, shame is also a very bitter cup to drink from. Oh, yeah. But we have to kind of just, I mean, it's easy to say, just try it and do it and take that risk. <laughs> but, you know, um, it's accessible, like trying to just uh, like trusting yourself, to let it be accessible because mm-hmm. shame is what keeps so many people quiet. And, you know, earlier in our talk about suicide, it's not wanting to feel like a burden sometimes. Some people are just they're not so despondent where they're just like, oh, my brain is just, sometimes they just won't, they're scared of feeling like a burden because they don't feel understood or they don't feel that there are no safe people around me to be vulnerable. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and that's, it's a, it's a journey. I mean, healing is not linear and it's okay to give ourselves grace and compassion. I've, I've written two articles on self-compassion. You know, if you can give it to others, you can totally reflect it back to yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, trip up or feel like, wow, I probably could have not watched Netflix for four <laughs> hours, but I had a paper to write, you know, what is the next best thing that you can do? Not instead of judging that action and really beating yourself up about it, just ask, what is the next best thing I can do to move forward with my goals and with the things I set in mind? Write it down. You are, you are the master. I love that about you. Writing things down in such a organized way and just reflecting back on it, mm-hmm. visualizing how you want to feel and what can help you get there. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be a grand idea. I mean, this could be, this, this is quote unquote free things that a, a pharmacist can't give you. I can't give you in a prescription and med- medications absolutely have their place, but just basic grounding skills for, for our own like self-sustainability keeps us so empowered I love that because you don't have to keep relying on someone else mm-hmm. to tell you me right when I first started therapy my therapist was like you're not always going to need me Ash and I'm like uh yes I am because I need to talk to you every week it's not because I'm always going through something but I just yeah I do need and she was like no you do, you don't like I'm just giving you tools and you, you're going to use those and you're going to like break up with me for the good for a good reason <laughs> I love, you know, I love giving, now I'm like, okay, yeah, that doesn't make sense, but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, uh, 
everybody else know. I like this this idea though of visualizing how you want to feel. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's so important. Uh, I talk a lot about goal setting and visualizing how you'll feel when you reach a goal. But I think Mm -hmm. in general, just visualizing how you want to feel like what, (laughs) which can seem again, it can be like, seems so absurd. Like, what do you mean? How? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think it comes with that belief that, that we should feel maybe it's secure, right? We should feel seen or we should feel, you know, valued or even just we should be able to feel happy and not second guess that happiness. Yeah. And, so, and when, we, when, we, when we sustain those visualizing thoughts, when we have those goal setting, I want to be in this space, I want to be in this role, however you you're, you're literally training your brain and making those firings in your brain to stick and help you reach it. And those happy chemicals are going to meet you where you're at. And it's a really great thing. Un- absolutely understanding though, this is not a solution, right? Especially right. if there's real depression in place, because that's a clinical issue. I, w- I won't look sunshine, sunshine and, and, you know, playing in the grass does not fix everybody's feelings of depression. I want to you know, really validate people who struggle in that way, especially if it's compounded with other um, co-occurring issues, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, borderline, per- it keeps going. I want to validate those people who will feel that way. But one like little things that we can do to motivate others to do is to visualize at least how you want to feel or where you want to be. And that, that it can kind of, it keeps you, it can keep you motivated when, when you just, you're, you're lacking in that area. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And yes, so important that you, again, just brought that back. Like these are just some tips that you might be able to use in the interim, but definitely, you know, there is a space, a place, a need for accessing services. Um, And I know we talked about how there are many barriers to that, but accessing the appropriate care is necessary. Um, These are some tips that might be useful for some folks. I think the boundaries part, especially when you said, you know, this idea of boundaries, which I I hear folks tossing around a lot, like it's kind of um, in to talk about boundaries and enforcing Uh boundaries. (laughs) Um, But something you said really stuck out to me, which is that just this idea of boundaries can maybe seem too rigid especially if you haven't experienced, you know, structure or order in your life. And to tie that back into how we started this conversation, you know, a type of trauma that we might not think of as a trauma is not having some sort of structure in your life. Like if you're growing up, you never knew what might be happening next. Every single day was completely different. That is a type of trauma, that instability, So once you try to, you know, insert some sort of structure in any capacity, that can seem, you know, very, you know, like, oh, I can't deal with that, right? That seems very odd. That's not really in kind of what's normal to me. I don't even know how to operate in this space of having structure or being able to um, kind of like a privilege of having a structured day if you have come grown up with a lot of instability. Yes. Yes. And we can, we can become addicted to our own stress, right? Mm -hmm. Even if we're out of a stressful environment as a child, we move on to adulthood. 
we're, we could subconsciously seek out ways to replay a chaotic moment or we think peace needs to be disrupted because this is boring, you know? <laughs> so let me just spice it up and pick a fight with somebody or, or just, um, I don't know, what's another buzzword? Trigger, let somebody just triggered me, right? Or, or I'm offended. And, and there, there's ways you can heal from that, but there are so many ways to um, try to try to offset that. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it, as you mentioned, you know, earlier, you said we're all vulnerable to something. And uh-huh. we're definitely vulnerable to our patterns. Um, and some of those patterns are unhealthy, but we can't seem to kind of quite get out of them. And that is where that professional help can assist us with finding, yeah. you know, new responses. Yes. Um, and as, as well-intentioned as your best friend might be, or your grandma, they're not your, they're not your therapist. Sometimes, sometimes we use that because that's all we know. Like, let me just go tell my bestie everything. And then she gives me her quote unquote toxic advice or, <laughs> or validates me for texting my ex, even though I should not have whatever it is, you know, <laughs> let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Sana, and I'm here with Ashley Aran Malate. Talking to a professional does not mean that you are like failing or struggling or weak. It's just like a very beautiful, neutral individual to help you try to meet your own goals. Um, Another point on boundaries, I actually had a recent conversation with a guy um, and we're on the phone. He's like, there you go talking about those boundaries again. And I said, well, you know, I don't want to talk about this specific topic with you because I just don't think it's really appropriate. And he became frustrated. Mm-hmm. Now I could have easily been like, oh well, oh no, 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 never mind. Okay, I guess I could just like talk to you about it a little bit, right? Try to just like appease him a little bit so I can just feel like I'm saving the friendship and relationship. I don't want tension. I don't want to make him feel offended since he had a bad reaction to my boundary. Listen, boundaries are for you and you only right? Mm. Helps keep you in accountability. Helps keep you in check. Even if it's drinking, right? If we're going out, like I, my boundary is one drink, no more. It's not to say y'all are drinking more and that's bad. It's just that I know my tolerance. I can't have more than one. Whether I'm in recovery, I got to work tomorrow. I ain't eat much. Pro- it's for you and you only. And that should, you know, unfortunately should go without explanation to people. But I just want people to get the gist of like, mm, your boundaries are all about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so important to remember. And again, that in itself can seem, um, that can be a struggle in itself to oh, have God. something <laughs> that's for you, right? Because that means, as you stated in your example, that means you might be, quote unquote, letting someone else down or, you know. and, yeah, and that can, a friend. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just thinking about how common some of these issues are, as you mentioned, you know, that we've all experienced some sort of trauma. I mean, for folks listening right now, we we are experiencing a trauma called COVID-19. Uh, we're experiencing a trauma from that trauma, which is ignoring the amount of loss, human lives that have been lost to COVID-19, um, just to name a couple of traumas that we're all experiencing. Um, but as you mentioned, both of us are in educational setting. 
And, you know, I see this with my students as well, um, both explicitly how they're dealing with um, with these traumas, right? Um, both through what they say about how hard it is and even through, you know, what they don't say. And in fact, what we know is that um, about 20% of young adults reported um, serious thoughts of suicide. I'm thinking about last fall when this study was conducted and that um, according to the Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey, young adult um, on young adult mental health symptoms, about 50% of their respondents also were struggling with anxiety or depression. Um, so when we're talking about, you know, oh, how might we, are there warning signs, right? Or is there something we should be looking out for, at least among young adults? So folks 18 to 24 years old, it's more than most likely, right? You have that 50%, 50, 50 chance that that young person in your life is dealing with some sort of anxiety or depression. Yes. Um, and there's definitely a difference between feeling depressed and being depressed, mm -hmm. um, you know, or being anxious or having an anxiety disorder, because there's a few of them. There's a few different types. And a lot of those issues are compounded with stress. How can we manage anxiety or, or feeling anxious? It's easy to say, just, you know, it's not that big of a deal. You're just, you're just going for a walk. But I'm like, no, that walk scares me because something happened to me when I was walking once and that was really scary for me, mm -hmm. right? That's hard to even verbalize for some people. Yeah. But there's, there's so much um, need. And I'm looking at, you know, the national, like 2021 national stats, LGBTQ youth. There's all ethnicities that are being affected, minority groups where we still have those cultural stigmas of black people don't get depressed. Nothing's wrong with you. You have three jobs to work. Um, you know, like, oh, by the way, the secondary traumas. Like, I remember there was a, well, we lived in Midtown and there was a violent crime, car accident, you know, the, the, the glass from the, the window shattered onto the ground at a very busy intersection. And the glass was on the ground for I would say at least three and a half weeks. Wow. Right? So it's not just who saw the accident, it's everybody who has to drive by that place every day and see that grass, glass on the ground and be like, dang, something happened here. And you have to be reminded, right? So when we were, you know, it would touch on like social determinants, our environment really does interpret like how we behave. It's our conditioning. And it's a regular reminder of you know, good, good and bad, positive or negative. I want to use the word good and bad, you know, but um, I think really paying attention to what the youth can do. What are some creative ways or, or things that you think, especially with your age group in the university setting that could help them or what, what resources? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have, you know, I will say the good thing at the University of Memphis is we do have a lot of student health services that are accessible to students. Um, and we also have, you know, kind of a process for students to get in touch with our dean of students. So again, accessing kind of the, the care that's available within the campus setting, um, but also accessing some I think some relief from some of the burdens of being a student, right? Being in school and feeling this pressure to 
excel or succeed at a certain level in itself um, can cause that extra feeling of anxiety. Um, but I also think having spaces where students, again, can be seen and feel like they are heard and valued. And I think that is on us as professors to create those spaces in our classrooms as well. Um, and I know folks have different ideas about what that classroom experience should be like, but I know for myself and some of my colleagues, we're very intentional about, you know, being aware of the whole student, right? So not just the student as in, oh, you're completing this assignment, and but that you're a student with family, with friends, with other responsibilities or obligations, and how can I be attuned to that without adding some unnecessary expectations or pressures in a situation where we are all feeling very pressured and stressed? I don't want to regulate my emotions today. It's too much. (laughs) (laughs) I just want a day off from regulating myself. (laughs) it's a lot yes it is you beautifully said attuning yourself to your students that is a very great way to say that you're it's a holistic approach to a human versus seeing a behavior that you don't like and you got to do something with that behavior you're seeing the whole person and that is absolutely amazing I think it's hard thank you so much and I think it's hard too for students to um, accept that, right? Because it's in so many ways in K through 12, students are really taught, you know, one, like they wrote learning, but two, like there is an authority figure and you kind of do what they say. Um, and so it can be a process too, to get students to understand, like I see the classroom as a space of, again, like co-creation and as a space where, yes, there are things I want you to learn, but not at the expense of yourself right um yes and I just I don't think that that's that would go against everything I'm even teaching in my classes if I were holding students to these very immovable standards and not giving them grace for you know assignments or for you know showing up in class you know things like that so I think it is again just you know seeing people as people and giving them a space to you know Mm -hmm. to show up in full and what that looks like it's not what I think it looks like but whatever it may be you know for them yeah so yes well Ash I know we're almost at the end of our time this morning so I wanted to give you um, the opportunity if there are other resources that you wanted to share with folks or any final thoughts that you wanted to leave our listeners with this morning of course well I, I'm, I'm glad we did begin with um speaking about that very sensitive subject of depression and suicide. And there are resources available, uh, different websites that are nationally recognized with statistics, articles, um, hotlines. One in in particular is Mental Health America. And I know that the um, there's a suicide prevention hotline that I do want to provide with you all before we go. Final thoughts, just wrapping up. I really did enjoy this this conversation. Um, it was very enriching for me, and and just knowing that, but you know, most of us are all doing our best. When we do talk about trauma, it's it's easy to say like your parents did your best, but sometimes they didn't. And you know, we can't choose. You can, we can't always just be like okay, everything has to make sense. Not everything happens for a reason. I just I cannot buy that. I mm. I don't. Sorry, I'm a minority with that. But just um 
giving ourselves grace and forgiving ourselves for decisions that we've had to make in circumstances where we felt like that was the only way to survive or to feel safe. Um, and knowing that regardless of what any of the listeners are going through, that you know, healing is, a, is available and accessible um, within first, you know, with some guidance and then exterior resources where, um, where we can try to heal ourselves for ourselves and our own community. Um, the suicide prevention hotline is, however, 800-273-TALK. Or if you or you, someone you know is in immediate crisis, please do call 911 because that can save a life. Yes. Thank you so much, Ashley. It has been such a pleasure to have you here this morning. I know talking about a very sensitive subject, but one that definitely deserves our attention. So thank you so much. Thank you again to Ashley Aramalate for joining us this morning to talk about a very sensitive topic, but one that is also very important. And of course, that is suicide. September is National Suicide Prevention Month. And hopefully our discussion this morning has given you some ways to think about suicide awareness, potentially some ways to uh, reach out to folks as well, or to at least create a space where if someone is having suicidal thoughts, they could share that with you. If you yourself are having suicidal thoughts, Remember, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. And just to add to our conversation of you know, warning signs or what we can do if someone expresses some suicidal thoughts to us, and that is asking if that person who is feeling suicidal if they have a plan, a plan to actually enact those suicidal feelings and or if they have access to firearms. For today's positive notes, I just want to remind everyone that you have the power to say, this is not how my story will end. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Remember, every Monday morning, I am here, and hopefully you will continue to join me. You can always listen to replays of previous shows on Apple or Spotify. I know this episode, I will have to listen to the replay because of all the great resources that Ashley shared with us this morning. Until next week, I'm Sanaa.